Financial Freedom Show. My name is Rob Berger. It's been two weeks, so I've kind of forgot how to do this. So, uh, yeah, a thumbs up would be great. You can hear and see me. I'm trying something new today. <laughs> uh, so in the past, you know, you in the, you've just put your questions in the chat, and then I have to sort of cycle through the chat, much of which is not a question for me. Uh, to find the questions. Well, turns out that Google YouTube has a little feature where <laughs> I can just start a Q and A and you can ask me questions. And then I just look at that. I don't have to look through the whole chat. Thanks Mike for the thumbs up. So, uh, I see questions coming in and so I assume it's working. I also know, thanks. Marcus gave me the double thumbs up. So, um, we're going to try that tonight. May, may make may make my life easier, and that's really all I'm I'm interested in. Uh, I thought what I'd do tonight something a little different is just talk about five, briefly five books that I'm reading that I think you might be interested in. Not, well, one of them is about money, uh, but most of the other four are not. Noreen says, "Is this a new feature?" Yes, it is. Uh, and so far, I like it. All right. So let's start with the five books. I think I've got links below the video to all of them on Amazon. I assume you can get these at your library. Let's start with the book. There's one of them about money. And many of you have seen, have read this. Um, here it is, The Psychology of Money. It's by Morgan Housel. Who, I think this is probably one of my favorite books on, on money. Now, this is not an investing book, right? So if you're looking sort of to understand asset allocation and basic investing, that's really not what this is about. I think this is about how we, our attitudes towards money and how our relationship with money. And in that sense, I just think it's phenomenal. You can see it's been a highly successful book. Look at this, 32,000 ratings with, I don't know what the average is, well, 4.7. So uh, it's a well-regarded book. I'm sure many of you have already read it, but I highly recommend it. It's a great book. All right. Um, so the other four I mentioned are not, not about money. And uh, uh, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about uh, for this, ch my channel is that, you know, we talk about financial freedom and all that, uh, and that's the heart and soul of the channel, and that's not going to change in retirement. But there's more to life than money, right? And I, I, I don't want to go too far astray, but there's things like your health, you know, what you eat, uh, fitness, um, just trying to understand yourself better and trying to live a, a good life, whatever that means for you. Again, this isn't going to be some sea change in, in the kind of content I produce, but I would like to sort of go into these areas to some degree. And tonight's a perfect example. I'm going to show you four other books that I'm reading that some of which kind of go into those things. And I'm guessing you won't have heard of at least some of these. All right. The first one, I really enjoy this book. I just bought it. Uh, and read it, uh, The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control. You can see I just bought it uh, last month. So this is written, uh, uh, Catherine uh, Schaffler, if I'm pronouncing her name right. I think she's a, I don't know if she's a, what her degree is, counselor or a psychiatrist or psychologist. So so obviously written by a woman and the book is for women. It's, it's target audience are women. Uh, and all of the sort of stories she tells that come from her work as a counselor or therapist, I guess I should say, are with women. I, I got to tell you, though, I found the book, one, incredibly fun to read. She's a great writer. Uh, and two, incredibly helpful. Uh, 
so I've always seen myself as a perfectionist, but not in, so the, the sort of in my mind, the typical perfectionist would be like Monk, if you ever watched that show, a little bit of OCD, everything's got to be perfect, you know, and, but there are really, perfectionism goes beyond that. And she actually talks about five different kinds of perfectionists, one of which describes me to a T, and that is what she calls the messy perfectionist. And messy doesn't mean your house is a mess. It means more like your mind is a mess. Well, that's not how she would put it. Uh, anyway, uh, it, it, was, it gave me a lot of insight about myself, including a lot of things that I already sort of knew but didn't put a label on or didn't put it in context. Uh, so, again, a great book. Um, all right. The next one is The Power Broker. Uh, Robert, it's about Robert Moses by Robert Caro, who's a well-known author. He did, he did a series and still working on a series on Lyndon Johnson. I think he's published four in that series and he's working on five, I think. This is about Robert Moses, who basically ran, as far as I can tell, ran New York City for several decades. And so many of the, the buildings, the highways, the parks, he was behind in one way or another. Uh, and just to give you a time frame, so he went to Yale in, I think he graduated in 09, meaning 1909, I think, somewhere in that time period. Uh, and for, first of all, these all of his books, but they're incredibly well-researched. He's an incredible writer. He takes years to write these books. Uh, uh, and this is and this is over a thousand pages, so I'm not done with it, but it is a phenomenal book. Um, so I like it a lot, highly recommend it. And, you know, the power broker, that title is, of course, is meaningful because a lot of, and this is true with Johnson books as well. It's about, uh, how power affects people. You know, one of my theories, you know, when you look at how leaders behave, there's a, I think a stark difference between leaders that, that because of the form of government are accountable, uh, to the people they govern and 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 don't and can't limit say freedom of the of the press that you can speak out and say what you want about that person and then those where basically they have unfettered power they have total control and you can't speak out or you if you do there are consequences and um I think you can probably put just go down the list and put countries in one of the two. It doesn't it doesn't mean that those who are accountable don't ever make mistakes or do bad things, but I think there's sort of a fundamental difference. And and I think power, you know, uh, what power does to people and to groups is a fascinating topic. A, a perfect example in our country is I, I'm always a, nervous when one party has complete control: House, Senate. Um, and the White House, and that's true, which, whichever party it is, uh, that always kind of gives me, oh, oh goodness, what's going to happen now? And you know, people talk about gridlock. I mean, it can be a bad thing. It can also be a good thing. Anyway, I don't mean to get political on you, but Power Broker is a great book. All right, how many have I done? Have I got one more? I got two more. Okay, you guys are going to like this one. <laughs> Convict conditioning. So, um, in fact, I saw in the chat, uh, someone was asking me, they, they hurt their back in the gym today. It's not good. Who was that? Uh, someone did. In any event. Yeah, I'll tell you what, what I do 
when my back goes out, I mean, you can ice it and heat and back all that sort of thing. But I also have these uh, the electric stimulation of these little pads you can put on your back and then it's just battery operated and it's <laughs> shock shit. No, it's not that bad. It just puts it's electric stem. You know, if you go to a, like a certain chiropractors or sports medicine folks will do the same thing. Um, that can help sort of relax the muscles, but I'm not a doctor. So what do I know? But in any event, so convict conditioning, uh, so I've spent, I've been in, in some form or another, been very, um, it, it spent a lot of time with conditioning over the last, uh, goodness, it's been 12 or 13 years. And uh, this book is basically about uh, body weight exercises, how to get into great physical shape without weights. And I've read through this quickly. The whole idea of convict conditioning, by the way, is, you know, if you ever get incarcerated and you don't have like a gym to go to, well, you don't need it. You can just use body weight. So it's an added bonus for this book. It walks through basically six exercises. That's it. If, 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 if for weightlifters, if you're familiar with the five by five workout where it's just five exercises and you do five sets of five, except for the deadlift, but those are with weights. And I've done that program, uh, but because of knees and, and backs and hips, uh, I'm really focused on body weight. And the six exercises uh, are push-ups, pull-ups, uh, leg lifts, um, <laughs> trying to remember now. Um, oh, squats. How many is that? Four? I'm missing, uh, I'm missing two others. But in any event, they'll come to me. Uh, he, he does them with progressions. So, for example, a push-up, the ultimate progression is a one-arm push-up. And, but there are 10 progressions for each exercise. And the first progression for push-ups is actually a wall push-up where you're just leaning, you know, uh, you're at arm's length from a wall and you're doing push-ups against a wall, which for many of you would seem silly. I did those today and they're very slow. You do two seconds and then you pause two seconds back. That's how all the exercises are done. And believe it or not, you can get a workout with a push-up against the wall. Uh, but I, uh, I found the book to be pretty well thought through and I like the program. And I'm, I'm, I can't believe it. So we got push-ups. So you, the goal is to get to a one-arm push-up. Uh, but again, you've got progression. Uh, squats, and the goal is to get to a, a one-legged squat. They call it a pistol squat. Again, progressions. Uh, pull-up, uh, one-arm pull-up, believe it or not. But again, all kinds of progressions. So don't worry if you know, you're know you not in shape. Um, the, the leg lifts, ultimately, the goal is a hanging leg lift. You know, I think it's toes to the bar if I remember uh, uh, correctly. And, um, oh yeah, stand, a, 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 a handstand push-up. So the idea there would be to work your shoulders, um, and, and including uh, what well, you can see from the book, the idea is a, a one-armed <laughs> handstand push-up. So I, I'm, I don't know how well you can see that, but yeah. Anyway, I really like calisthenics, body weight exercises. I like that book. Um, and then the last book I'm reading that I'm really enjoying is on cooking. Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. Excellent book. Now, this is a well-known book. Many of you have probably read it. You can look at this. It's got an average rating of 4.8 with over 21,000 ratings. Uh, but this came up, I, I, I forget, uh, this came up this weekend and I bought it. And um, I, I really, really like the, this book. It's not a book of recipes. It's about how to use, in this case, for example, salt. And um, it's just really, really good. And I think the meals that I prepare are going to be a lot better because of this book. So uh, I haven't finished it, but so far, really, really liking it. So there you go. There's the five books. That was pretty quick, right? Yeah, it wasn't too bad.
I'm just looking through the chat to see if you guys had any comments on these books. And someone asked me if the earplug litigation can destroy a company like 3M. I don't know what the earplug litigation is. What's the earplug litigation? Is that a thing? Huh. I guess military members are suing, thousands of them. Well, could it lead to bankruptcy? I mean, 3M is a pretty big company. I don't know. I, I guess anything's possible, but I don't know. Um, okay, so let's try these questions. Let's see if I've got more. Oh, yeah. Now, in theory, I'm supposed to be able to show you these. In theory. Uh-huh. But why can't I? Huh. It won't let me scroll. That seems odd. Hang on. I think we're getting there. Here we go. Whew. Let's see. No, that's not it. Questions. Here we go. So the first, let me see if I can show this on the screen. If I select this question, I don't know. Can you guys see that question? Anyway, the question is, do you participate in subreddits like Bogleheads or personal finance? Um, that's the question. I would like to know if you guys can actually see that. Sorry, for, for those that are like new, like this is your first time, this is not normally how it goes. I'm usually, I wouldn't say I've always got my act together, but usually I'm a little better than this. Hear that? Oh yeah, you can see it. All right, good. All right. Uh, so I, I so I do follow a number of subreddit subreddits. Bogleheads is one. Fat fire, all the fire, fat fire, chubby fire, lean fire. Um, I don't I don't spend much time in the personal finance subreddit, but I will say that I don't comment very often. I don't know why. It's a, I don't know. Busy. I can't even get to all your emails. So you know. But I do follow those and comment every great once in a while. They're good. They're good to follow. And I think they have a lot of good information on there. All right. Next one. I like this so far. Um, Rob, any idea when the big fund families like Vanguard and Fidelity will start offering a Roth SEP IRA and Roth Simple IRA? And I would add to that a Roth Solo 401k, although I think Vanguard does offer a Roth I think they offer a Roth solo 401k, although their interface for their business accounts, which is what that would be, is just awful, dreadful. I wouldn't use it. I've used it in the past. Don't like it. Uh, and I don't have an answer to that question, but I, I have given this some thought because we have a solo 401k, my wife and I, and it's a traditional 401k. And I thought, well, if in any given year, I, I think, well, I would have I would have preferred to have contributed to a Roth or contributed partially to the Roth. I do have a, a, a rollover IRA. I could just do a Roth conversion. And I think you CPAs out there might tell me there's a slight difference tax-wise. I'd have to think that through. I don't know. But I would think the tax consequences would be similar, if not identical, right? Because if you contributed directly to the Roth, that money would be taxable, right? It wouldn't, uh, obviously. 
But if you contribute to a traditional and then in another account do a conversion, that money's taxable. So I kind of think it would work out identical or close. Again, UCPA, I'm not a tax person. I think it'd be pretty close. All right. Let me stop for a moment and ask how this is going. I see a lot of questions in the chat. So please ask the questions in the Q&A thing at the top, which should still be there. I hope. Because I'm not going to the chat to find questions. All right. So Tyler Owens says, uh, let's see here, that Robinhood is now offering a 1% match for an IRA. Yeah, this is sort of a thing. I think Fidelity may be doing this too, maybe. Um, there's limits to it, and it's you know, so it's not a lot of money, but it's something. I wouldn't use, personally, I wouldn't use Robinhood. Uh, you, you can use Robinhood, but you have to you have to keep in mind that the way they make money, in, at least in my view, is not consistent with investors' long-term interests generally. They want you to trade crypto and trade options and be an active trader. Um, and so you, that doesn't mean you have to be. But their whole platform is sort of designed. It's almost got a gambling feel to me. And I have used it. Um, I haven't traded any stocks, but I do, I do own one share of Macy's from when I uh, signed up for Robinhood just to check it out. So I got that going for me. So this is a question I don't quite follow, but it looks interesting. Can you walk through a year two exam? I don't know what a year two exam is. Is this law school? I would think that would be it, but the, 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 I don't know. You must mean something else. I mean, for law school, year two exams, all the exams are the same. I didn't find year two to be any different than year one or three. But I'm guessing maybe that's not what you meant. By the way, for those that are interested, at least this is how it was when I was in law school. Your entire grade was one exam for the whole semester. Uh, and all the exams, uh, there may have been one exception, but they were all essay. And it might be two or three questions. And you had you know these little book pamphlets, booklets that they'd give you and you'd you know, write your answer. Some of them were open book. Because the questions there are not like, you know, kind of fact-based questions where, you know, the answer is four. <laughs> they were more about understanding a, a, some sort of fact pattern and identifying the legal issues that the fact pattern presented and then writing some hopefully intelligent thing about all of that, um, which really suited me. I, I found the exams, I mean, I you know, at the time it was nerve-wracking, but in hindsight, I found them fairly straightforward and not, not that difficult. Although international law, hmm, actually, I did well in international international business transactions. It was the, my worst grade in law school. I don't know. Oh, okay. You didn't. You weren't asking about law school. I see it now. Kind of. Your question seems more relevant to our purposes here tonight. Kat says, "Can you walk through a year two example of four percent rule? Do you just increase annual withdrawal by inflation, or do you increase the four percent?" So here, here's the thing to keep in mind. Um, the short answer is you take whatever the dollar amount was in year one. So if you if you had a million dollars, you used four percent, that gave you forty grand. You take the forty grand and you add to it 
uh, whatever the inflation was. So if the inflation was 5%, you'd add what, two grand, I think. Uh, and so you'd take out 42,000 the next year. But, but uh, keep a couple of things in mind. How th There are many different ways to calculate how much you can spend in retirement in years two through the end, right? Adjusting uh, the, the the previous year's amount by the rate of inflation, which is the, the approach Bill Bengen followed, who gave us the 4% rule, that's just one of many approaches, okay? And so um, which approach you follow will influence what your starting percentage is because there are other approaches that will allow you to start with a higher percentage, which sounds great, right? Except that they tend to require you to cut back at some point during retirement. There's no free lunch. But I, I just kind of want to stress that. Um, the 4% rule, it's sort of become that, we've given it that name from Bill Bingham's 94 paper, used a what they call a constant dollar approach, meaning you adjust for inflation every year. And you do that regardless of what inflation is. You do that regardless of what um, uh, the market is doing. I, I say you do that regardless of those things if you follow the Bill Bingen paper. Most retirees don't actually ignore the market and don't actually ignore inflation. I'm guessing if you're retired, there's a good chance you didn't just take your inflation adjustment from last year. You, you probably tried to cut back a little bit because the market was down, the bond market was down, inflation was high. So there's sort of the a practical side to all of this. But yeah, to answer your, your question, yeah, you take whatever the amount was the previous year and add inflation to it. Or maybe there was, you know, if prices go down, you'd actually take out less, right? All right. So next question. John, I have four children and save a little each month in, in minor savings accounts. The purpose isn't exclusively for education. If it were you, would you target high yield savings to try to get market exposure? Well, depends on what I'm saving for. He said it's not exclusively for education. But so if this were sort of just long term savings, you know, to set them up for life kind of thing, I would be in the market personally. I wouldn't have anything in high yield savings. Uh, if if it were for the part that was for education, it would depend on how far away that was. And, you know, I've mentioned this in the past, but one way to think about that is to go to, to go to a good 529 plan. I mentioned Utah in the past as an example and see how they invest as your children get older. I, I, you know, I'm not suggesting you need to follow that approach, but I think it would give you some good insight into um, how, these sorts of programs think about asset allocation as your children age and get closer and closer to um, to college, if that's what you're saving for. But if I were saving for longer term, just, you know, for life, uh, you know, I, I would probably have most of it in the market. It's what I would do. <laughs> this is the best question ever. Leeward, what should I watch on the Mondays you're not live? Well, it's it, it is it is a challenge. I know. Um, I watched. I'm a little embarrassed to say this. I don't know. I don't know why I'd be embarrassed. So I was sort of surfing, trying to find something last night, and Two Guns, which is a movie. Oh, is it ten years old? Eight years old? It was with Denzel Washington, so he's phenomenal, and Mark Wahlberg, and they're 
uh, I won't. It's a it's an action thriller comedy kind of movie, but I actually found it rather enjoyable. So you can watch that if you have it. Yeah, beyond that, I don't know. Because it's going to be every other Monday for a while, I think. Let's see here. Oh, Noreen is testing the new feature with a question. General advice for someone who's behind on saving for retirement. I have 401k, traditional Roth IRAs, high rent costs, which is unavoidable these days. Well, the, the if I were behind, the first thing I wouldn't do is try to catch up with overly risky investments. Uh, now, what does that mean? Is going It could vary from one person to another depending on you know your risk tolerance and your views on the market and, and, and so forth. But I wouldn't I wouldn't get outside my comfort zone as a way to try to make up for lost time. I would do everything I could to cut expenses. Now I know it's easy to sit behind the mic here, got the lights and the camera. Oh, cut your expenses. That's easy. Next question. I know it ain't easy, but I would I would work hard to, to cut my expenses in every way possible uh, so that I could save more. That's what I would do. I mean, there, there might be things I would do on the income side too, but that's going to just vary dramatically from person to person and what your field is, what you do for a living. And, you know, so I don't, I don't know what I could say, what generalities I could offer there that would help. All right. Michael says, when evaluating money market funds, should I focus on any factors other than the tax equivalent yield? Um, well, I suppose I'd want to know who's behind the fund, right? You know, if it's a Fidelity, a Vanguard, you know, some big entity like that, that'd be great. But if it's, you know, depending on who's behind the fund, I would at least want to understand that. Um, you know, I've, I tend to focus on the SEC yield, you know, the, the seven, I think for money, money market funds, it's a seven day yield, um, which gives you sort of the current, how it's currently performing. Um, I don't know. There might be other things, but those are what come to mind. Again, assuming that the company that's behind the fund is a solid company. So Kit, value question. I see you lean towards value, so why not go with 100% VTV? Well, it's kind of like, you know, I lean towards Advil when I've got a headache, but there's a limit, right? I mean, too much of, of, of something can be bad, and I'm not willing to risk all of my portfolio on a bet that value is going to do great um, over my investing time period. So, you know, I like a little value. Most of the stocks I buy are value. By the way, did you see how my deer stock did this past week? Huh? Huh? Like it's lucky. I'm sure it'll go down at some point, but had a big week. Uh I didn't I don't have much invested in it. That's the other thing, you know. I think I've made like 50%, something like that, since I bought it, but it's not like I shoved all my chips into deer stock, unfortunately. Um so yeah, I, I just I don't tend to go to those extremes. Like more or less, my portfolio is it may be left of if, if value is to the left, it's left of center. But it's not. I'm not getting extreme with it. It's, it's just my comfort level. Again, I'm asking myself, can I stick with this portfolio forever? Even if say like for the last ten years, or except recently, 
growth significantly outperforms value. So maybe you can go more value and you'd be fine with it, but not for me. Oh, yeah. Karen's got a great point here. I actually want to watch this. So it's a documentary called Turn Every Page. And it's, a, yeah, you, you can read the comment there. But it's Robert Caro's, he has an editor that he's used for all of his books, I think for all of them. And um, the documentary is sort of about their working relationship. And I don't know, is it out yet? I, in fact, I just had it up on my, I had the trailer on my screen right before um, the live show tonight. I, am, I do plan to watch that, but good, uh, good recommendation. Here's a good question from David. If you were set to retire in four years, what would your portfolio allocation look like? So it depends. So the first thing I would ask is, um, based on you know, based on what I know today, four years from retirement, what in year one, what percentage of my portfolio will I spend? Uh, and and do I see that changing? Of course, it's going to change as the market changes, right? Inflation, but uh, but are there other factors? So, for example, uh, maybe it's six percent in year one, but that's because you're not going to take Social Security for five years. And once you take Social Security, at least based on today's numbers, it'll drop to three percent or, or whatever. Or you get a pension, but not right away. Or you know you have a deferred annuity. So some other, the point is, are, is there other money coming in later? So that would be question, what percentage do I need now? Um, and, and the reason I say that, you know, also oh, another factor would be how old am I? Am I retiring at 65 or 45 or, or 85? Those are all going to go into the mix. Uh, also, that's another factor is um, how much of what I'm going to take out of my portfolio do I need to survive? Is it, is it, is it really true needs that, that I'm funding with this money? Or is it maybe I've got Social Security and a pension and that covers my bills and food and, you know, my sort of fixed expenses. I could get by if I had to on that. And the portfolio is sort of the fun money. Or maybe yeah, I need a little of the portfolio money to, to keep the lights on, but but 75% of it's fun money. These are all factors that I would consider in coming up with a plan. And, it, and, and keep in mind, it's not an exact science. It's not as if you could say, okay, well, Rob, here are the seven answers to those questions. So what's the number? You know, But um, I would be, uh, age is a very important one. If you're retiring at 65, um, I would be, I would, I would probably get real concerned if you're taking out certainly more than 5%, I would get concerned. You say, wait a minute, what about the 4% rule? That depends. It depends on we have other income coming in later. Do you see your spending going down through retirement? It does for most people based on studies. Maybe it won't for you. Remember, Bill Bingen assumed a constant dollar after inflation number until, until the end of life. And I think that's it's a reasonable assumption for a study. Because if you don't assume that, then what do you assume? You've got, you know, but I don't think it's reasonable for you and I in terms of real life. That's just not how just not how life works. Um, so I would look at all of those things. Um, and I would probably find a good re retirement planning tool. I've been going through many of them. Um, I've got more to go through. I was looking at the retirement budget tool for budget. I think it's retirement budget calculator. Uh, I'm going to look at Prelana if I'm pronouncing it right. Um, so there are several more. 
I like new retirement, but I would pick one of them to run numbers with as well. But those would be the factors I would think through. Hope that helps. All right. So this Thomas asks the question, are you aware of any firm that will simply hold an indexed portfolio and distribute dividends to beneficiaries? Trust firm fees are high and tend to be conservative for descendant. Well, you, I'll tell you where I would start. I, I don't know the answer to that question, but I can tell you where I would start. I keep a list of, I'll show it to you here. Um, hang on. Here we go. A list of low-cost financial advisors. And I started to get fancy. Look at this. Right? Um, but then I've got I, I got I've got more work to do down here. Um, but I would start reaching out to these folks and asking them if this is what what they do. Um, I actually got an email, I think, from this one. I have to update their prices. Um, there was another one that I, I, I should add to this list. I'll show it to you. Here it is, uh, Altruist Financial Advisor. Again, I don't know the person behind this at all. I think they're out of Michigan, but I wouldn't hold that against them. Uh, and they are very inexpensive if you have a lot of money <laughs> because they, um, they charge a flat fee of 0.235% Per year on the first 10 million, but the minimum fee is 30,000. So, uh, that, but, but they're, from what I can tell, they're very much an index fund kind of um, firm. Actually, a lot of good resources on this website. So, if you don't use them, you should check out the website. I, I love the website. They got a lot of stuff. Here's DFA versus Vanguard, their view of, of what the best funds are. Um, so, uh, you might start there. All right. Hope that helps. So there are poll suggestions. One one potential downside to um, using this Q and A feature is I'm not sure I can do a poll at the same time. <laughs> That's advanced YouTubing. I'll have to work on that. Um, all right. So I've gotten this question a lot lately, and it's it, it, here it is. With the debt ceiling limit, is it too dangerous to invest in treasury bills? I can tell you I invest in them. So I guess for me, the answer is no. I could see it's theoretically possible you could get delayed in getting your money. It's possible. I think the odds of not getting it are, that, that doesn't seem too likely to me. Um, yeah. Also, I think we've got the money until July, right? I think we we hit we hit that we actually hit it in July. I think they've said. Anyway, all right. So Kit wants to know if I keep all of my accounts. <clears throat> 
at one provider like a Fidelity or multiple? And the answer for me is multiple. I have, I have four. One of them has a small amount in it, and it's mainly to get good credit card rewards from Bank of America. Um, but yeah, I I I would not be comfortable. I I would love the convenience of a single broker. Um, but I don't know that I'd be comfortable with that. So, yeah. So this is a diet uh, nutrition question. I absolutely encourage questions that have nothing to do with money. Since you brought up food, what do you include in your diet? Personally, I stick to fish, green veggies, garlic, tomatoes, mushrooms, and stay far, far away from processed food. So my diet is fairly simple or my nutrition. I'm not, I'm not on a diet. In terms of my, my regular sort of thing, I don't eat processed sugar. I mean, I'll make exceptions. You know, we go to the beach, I got to get ice cream. But, you know, day-to-day, week-to-week, I don't eat processed sugar. I don't eat breads, or rarely. Don't eat fried foods. Um, I, I do eat some red meat, but try to keep it to a minimum. So I'm trying to think the last time I had red meat. It's more than a week ago. I don't know. Um, typical for me is I'll, I do protein shakes most days, which are Ascent is the protein powder I use. I'll show it to you. I think it's pretty good. I think I actually heard this from uh, heard of this from maybe um, Tim Ferriss. There it is. Uh, and I'll put blueberries in it. Sometimes almond milk, but you know almond milk doesn't actually have much nutritional value. It's got some vitamins in it. So sometimes I just use whole milk. Um, I might have banana with almond butter, although I'm trying to cut back on the almond butter a bit. Um, I, I do overnight oats, so it's rounded oats, uh, usually almond milk, um, sometimes some plain Greek yogurt in it. Some uh, Is it chia seeds? I, chai? What, what, what? I don't know. Here's an I put some of this in it, although not that brand. Um, I'll throw some blueberries in it, some honey sometimes. Uh, I will have eggs. Um, I'll have like tonight for dinner, I had chicken that I made in a slow cooker. I, I did some grilled zucchini and quinoa. And I know you guys are like, man, poor guy. That sounds awful. <laughs> Sometimes I'll do scrambled. I, the other day I, I, I love this meal. I had scrambled eggs, some quinoa, and I think it was zucchini, grilled zucchini. It could have, could have been grilled broccoli. I don't remember. Yeah. All right. So Tom says, what do you think about the notion that the rise of passive index investing has created a bubble in the indexes themselves? I don't find much merit to that. Um, I mean, if you go back in time, you'll see that it, 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 at many points in the past, the top 10 companies of, say, the S&P 500 dominated 20% or more of the, you know, of represented 20% or more of, of the index. This isn't just something that's happened in the last few years. So I'm personally, and you see companies come in and go out, right? Um, so, uh, and, and so I'm not, I'm not, I don't lose any sleep over it personally. 
Okay. So Alexander says, regarding the saying that you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with, has this been true in your life, being around successful people and your law career propelled you forward? You know, I, I do think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, you know, I think about my online business. Uh, I think some of the things that helped me the most were meeting people that were wildly successful and understand, you know, you, you know that the biggest thing was? When I would meet people that, you know, they had webs a website or blog that just, you know, they were making, you know, gobs of money or they were very popular on YouTube or they were, um, you know, whatever. The, 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 what struck me the most was how normal they were. You, know, you put in your mind, you have this sort of vision of how they must be just superhuman, you know, kind of. And they're not. They're just average folk. Um, they work hard. Um some of them, I, I would say, man, they're, they're, I'd walk away and say, they're brilliant. But other people, I'd say, you know, they're just nice people, hardworking, you know. Uh, but, but, but all of them were sort of basic, down-to-earth people. And it, you, you come away with that thinking, you know, well, you know, maybe I can do this too. And, and the same thing was with, with lawyering. I mean, there were a few lawyers that I met that, to me, were exceptional. They were beyond, you know, just smart, good lawyers. Um, one that comes to mind is Dan Webb, who I guess he's still practicing. He was former uh, United States attorney out of Chicago, um, just a phenomenal trial lawyer. And he's like out there. I mean, he's just, you know, phenomenal. Um, he's older now, so I, I don't know if he's still, anyway. But m most of the lawyers that I knew, even the ones that were very successful, you know, they were smart and they were good and they worked hard, but there's nothing particularly special about them. I don't mean that, and I don't, and I don't mean that as a negative thing at all. My point being, um, you know, you can do it too. I could do it too. I, that was sort of probably the biggest takeaway for me. That's why they say never meet your heroes, because you, you realize they're just normal people. I think the most famous person I've ever met. I don't know. I remember being at a dinner in New York City, and I uh, forget the actor's name. You would know it. In any event, he was being honored, and but Sigourney Weaver was there, and you know I, I'm too nervous to go over. She's like a tape one table over, and so someone at our table who just had you know the courage, I guess, just jumped out of her chair, goes, I'm going to go meet Sigourney Weaver. Well, she goes over there and they talk and laugh for like 30 minutes. They're doing selfies. And, you know, you just sort of realize, yeah, I mean, I suppose not every famous person is going to react in a positive way if you go approach them. But, yeah, just good people. I don't know. That's my answer to your question. Is anyone still watching? we got a few. Ah, Noreen met Ted Knight. Yeah, he seems like a nice guy or was, I guess he's, I assume he's passed away. I shouldn't say that about people because I don't know. I can't, I'm trying to think of the most famous person. I don't know. I've never met a president. I mean, I, I well, no, I haven't met a vice president either. I've been in the room with a vice president. That doesn't really count for much. All right. I was in the courtroom with Chief Justice Rehnquist. He didn't talk to me, though. 
Okay, what do we got next? Vug or VGT? I don't know. Well, Vug is the uh, Vug is uh, the growth fund, right? Let's pull these up if I can. Here we go. I'll show you the screen in a minute. So Vug is Vanguard Growth Fund, which I think is fine is a, is a growth fund. VGT, that must be another Vanguard Growth Fund. Oh, it's, it's, it's tech. Well, so it really depends on what your purpose is, I think. Um, hang on, I'll pull it up on the screen. It's taking me a, a second. This, this is the way I think about these two funds. So um, this, this is, as the name suggests, is a growth fund, which means if we go to the portfolio and you can see the sectors, it certainly has a lot of tech, 40%, but it's got a lot of other things, you know, consumer cyclical, com communication services, healthcare, and so on. Um, and so if you go to VGT and we look at the sectors, you know, it's almost all tech, and and the and whatever it, these other categories, it's probably tech type firms in those in those sectors. So if I would consider this portfolio if I wanted more exposure to technology, and I would consider this uh, fund if I wanted more general exposure to growth. So they're not really to me; they're two different, very different things. Although they're both categorized in the growth you know, in the growth um, column, if you will, or whatever. But I, I see them as serving two different purposes. Yep. Well, okay. The next question from Karen is, can you please describe your decision-making process for contributing to a Roth? How much, when, tax implicate? Well, the first question is Roth versus traditional. I tend to primarily focus on my, my what my tax rates will be this year. If I were in the highest tax rate, federal, and particularly if I lived in a high state income tax state, I would, I would lean towards traditional. If I were at the lower end of the tax brackets, I would lean towards Roth. If it were somewhere in the middle, I'd probably also lean towards Roth. Um, you can you can you can contribute more to a Roth in a way. I mean, the contribution limits are the same, right? Whether you're talking about an IRA or four hundred one k. But because Roths are after tax dollars, every dollar you're putting in belongs to you. So you, let's say you could max out whatever sixty is it sixty five hundred? I don't even remember. I guess it's sixty five. Whatever. You can, you can max that Roth out. It's all yours with traditional. Some of that's going to end up going to the government eventually, right? But it's still what would drive my decision are taxes. The other thing that I do consider uh, as you get older is how much I already have in, in both types of accounts. And, you know, do I want to um, maybe add more to, to one type because I, I've got a lot less than that? In my case, I've got a lot less Roth. We're contributing to a traditional 401k this year, but as I mentioned earlier, as we move as we move through this year and get to the end of the year, if it makes sense to increase Roth, I'll just do a, a, a conversion of some amount. 
So I can adjust exactly what I want through conversions. So those are the main factors that I think about. Hope that helps. All right, let's see. <laughs> G Branding says, would you say diversifying streams of income, just how people diversify their investment portfolios is important? I think if you can do it, it's a very good thing. And in fact, one of the things that gives me comfort about our own retirement is the fact that I can make money through, as you say, side hustles in a way that's very lifestyle friendly. But I also recognize that not everyone's going to want to do that, right? So if you can generate income from multiple sources, yeah, I think it's it's an excellent thing to do. It takes a lot of risk off the table or allows you to handle the risk, say, that comes with a portfolio. So yeah, I think it's really important but I also recognize not everyone's going to do it. Baron asked me a question that I'm I'm very angry about. I can't believe he asked me this. How's the novel coming along? Not good. Not good. I think for the next couple of months, I'm not going to make a lot of progress on things like that. But hopefully later in the year, I will. So RV wants to know who my favorite fiction authors are. Well, I will tell you... Um, my favorite storyteller of, of authors that are still alive is Stephen King. I think he is probably one of the best storytellers out there. Um, his, his novels, you know, they, they can go off the rails a bit in my humble opinion where, you know, it's a great novel, but then the ending is just so weird. Of course, that's him. That's his shtick, right? Um, but he's probably one of my favorite. I just read a Baldacci novel that, to me, doesn't compare to a Stephen King novel in terms of the quality of the writing. But it was a page turner. It was Zero Day. It's an older one that he wrote. And, you know, is it great fiction? Is it a great classic novel? No. But I enjoyed it. It was entertaining. Kind of like Two Guns. <laughs> Same thing. Um, I'm trying to think who else. I mean, you know, the John Grishams and that sort of thing, although I haven't read a Grisham novel in a while, but I like him. Um, the truth is, until recently, I haven't been reading a lot of fiction, and I do want to read more. You know, you get into, like, The Power Broker, which is, like, 1,100 pages, and that, that soaks up some time. So Douglas has a question about new retirement. Why is the free version so much less than the paid version? And I'm guessing what you mean is in terms of features. Uh, and I just, I don't know. And I don't even remember the differences because it's just been a long time since I've looked at free versus paid. You know, but I may do it. If you like that, I mean, I may do more videos like that. So for those of you that aren't familiar, it wasn't just your normal 10-minute re uh, review or 20-minute video reviewing in this case, new retirement, it was kind of like a live, it was live like this, but everything was focused on new retirement. And so we, it was kind of like a working session where we all had our new retirement app up. Obviously I couldn't see yours. You, you could see the one I was working on, which was with, you know, made up data. 
and we kind of walk through it together. And you guys ask me questions, and I tried to answer them if I could, and you help me. Um, we might do that again, but you know, with a different tool. All right. So I think the way, so the next question is, what does the seven-day yield mean for a money market like Schwab's? Does this work like a CD? No. Doesn't So remember with the CD, you put a lump sum in, and when, when it matures, you take a lump sum out. You, you're not, you're not, you can't withdraw 20% of it and then put more in later, right? With a money market fund, you could. You could say, okay, I'm going to add some, add some more the next day, take some out the third day. And they may have some trading limits depending on the fund, I suppose. But uh, so let's look at one of these. Let's see here. I don't know if I'll pull up Schwab's. Well, we can. Let's see if I can find it. Let's see. Ah. Let's do, um, I'll just pick up a different one. Morningstar is being a pain. Either that or I just don't know what I'm doing. That's probably more like it. So here we go. I'll show you this in just a second. Boy, these are expensive. So here we go. So this is a Schwab fund, um, SWVXX, 34 basis points, which I think for a, I don't know, for money market fund, that seems high to me. But um, here's the seven-day yield. And the waivers, they can waive some fees. So I guess they, it's funny, with waivers, it's one basis, the, the yield is one basis point higher. So um, not a big difference, but they define it right here. I don't know how what you probably can't read that very well. Let me make it bigger. The seven-day yield is the average income paid out over the previous seven days, assuming interest income is not reinvested and it reflects the effect of all applicable waivers. That just means sometimes they um, waive some fees. Absent such waivers, the fund's yield would have been lower, and and it's annualized, right? You didn't make the, you didn't make four point four seven percent in seven days. If you took the income from the last seven days and then took that and annualized it, this would be what you got. There you go. I think, I think, that's, I, think I got it. Yeah, it's close enough. Huh. Uh, let's see here. I got ahead of myself. One person asked me, I, I just got to show you this comment. This, it, this scares me a little bit. Clarice says, yes, Rob, no questions. Just thanks for the deer stock. I bought it last year and it's been doing very well. It always gives me the heebie-jeebies when someone invests based on something I said, like a stock or something. But yeah, so far it's worked out. So that's good. But just remember, may not. And I'm not telling you where to invest. You have to make those decisions on your own. I invested in, in, in um, a Blockbuster once. So be warned. You're warned. You're on notice. That's right. And that was after Netflix. That was when Blockbuster wasn't doing well. Okay. Uh, 
Let's see here. Here's one. We're a few months out from the new I-bond rates. Are you as excited for May 23 as you were for November? No, 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 no. Uh, the inflation rate will be lower. Um, I, think it'll be, I think it'll be much lower. There's a site that kind of tracks this. Let's see here. I-bond inflation rate May 2023. Let's see if it comes up first. I think this is it. Yeah, this is the site. So I'm sure you can't read this, but for May 23, the, the I-bond inflation rate is projected at 2.4% based on four months data. Uh, of course, we've got two more months, so who knows what will happen. But obviously, um, that's not a lot, right? Um, so, yeah, I'm not I – mean, we'll see what happens, but no, I'm not thinking – um, I'm thinking, of, you know, if, if I were going to buy I-bonds this year, and I haven't decided if I am actually, but I would buy them before. Well, you'll know in April what the rate's going to be. So you could wait till then, but I, I'm guessing it's going to be lower. And, you know, the, the other, of course, the other thing about timing of an I-bond purchase is, are you a short-term investor? You got to hold it. You got to keep it in there for 12 months. But do you, you know, are you just trying to get a good rate for a year, a year and a half or two years? Or are you a long-term investor? Because if you're like, no, I'm in it for the long term, the fixed rate's actually much more important, right? Because it, it'll it'll stay with you for the for as long as you're in the bond. Uh, okay. Let's see. Ethan says, on the topic of law school, if I want to go but don't want to pay for it, is spending extra time to get a 180? on the LSAT, a good plan for getting a full ride, or is that not feasible? So just to tell you, show you how old I am, when I took the LSAT, the highest score you could get was 48. I'm assuming 180 is a good score. I don't know. Maybe it's a perfect score. I got a 42 when I took it, uh, which was, I think, top 5%. And then I started teaching the LSAT course for Kaplan. And as part of teaching it, I could, I could get 48s, you know, taking practice exams, which made me wish I'd studied harder for the LSAT. But I, I don't know how much your LSAT score, I don't know, I don't know today if law schools, I mean, maybe that's a factor, but I don't know that you're going to get a full ride just because you get a perfect LSAT score. And that's law school admissions test, I should add. Um, yeah. So I don't know. It's expensive, though. When I, when I went to law school, uh, I couldn't believe how much it cost. It was 15000 a year, fifteen grand a year. Today, let's see. I went to Boston University. Boston University Law School. Is it hundred grand yet? No, it's not. It can't be hundred grand. 80, 70? I don't know. Is that all? 41000 Oh, that's a 2011, 2012. I'm like, come on. Can't be right. So tuition is 61 grand. Oh, but wait a minute. Then you got books, room and board. Ends up being 83 grand a year. Yikes. 
a lot of money. Okay. So uh, Phil wants to know if I have one fun suggestion for college savings for grandkids for four under three years of age. Um, so if you're in a 529, they have sort of the target date kind of funds. I would be probably perfectly fine with those. Um, if it's in a taxable account, it's a little trickier because as they get closer and closer to college, you probably want to make changes, but then you're going to get hit with taxes. So it depends what kind of account it's in. Um, I don't know if there are sort of target date funds for, 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 for education outside of 529 plans. I don't know. I've never looked. But I, again, I'd be concerned with the taxes. So I don't know what I would do outside of a 529 plan, which reminds me, I gotta make a note to self. Um, I got a I got a speeding ticket. No, or a, I'm sorry, a toll violation ticket from from last July. It just came in the mail from last July, and they're charging me a late fee. Anyway, I gotta make sure I invest the 529 money I've put in. Okay. So yeah, outside of a 529, you know, I don't know what I'd put it in. That's a good question. I'm going to think about that. Inside a 529, I would just go with sort of like a one fund or, um, if they're good options and not too expensive. Oh, another 4% question. So uh, can you explain a little bit more about adjusting the 4%, adding inflation percentage to 4%? Yeah, it is a little confusing. And here's the, this will clear it up for you. you let's say you retire, you've got a million dollars. Under the 4% rule, take a million times 4% gives you $40,000. That's what you can take out and spend it year one. Here's the tricky part. At that point, you take the 4% and throw it out the window. It's now, you no longer use it. It sounds odd, but the 4% rule, you only use the 4% to get the ball rolling, to figure out how much you can spend in year one. Once it's served that purpose, you're done with it. The 4% rule, the 4% of the 4% rule doesn't come up again. You don't use it anymore. You only use it for that first calculation for that first year of retirement. After that, you take the actual dollar amount in this hypothetical 40,000 and you adjust that number by the CPI, the rate of inflation. That's how the 4% rule worked as Bill Bingen envisioned it in his 1994 paper. Yeah. All right. What time is it? Okay, we're good. What do you think of VGK plus VPL versus total international ETF? I have no idea. These are going to go off the screen, so let me actually write them down. VGK. I should be able to remember this. VPL. Let's see here. I'll put it up on the screen here in a minute. So it's the Vanguard FTSE Europe ETF. That's, um, here, I'll put it up on the screen. That's uh, VGK. And VPL 
FTSE Pacific. Well, my first, for me, my first question would be, why am I making this more difficult than it needs to be? Why am I splitting my international into two funds? I think the reason you would do that would be, or one of the reasons could be, you want to decide exactly what percentage goes into each of these, in this case, these two, two specific funds. I generally, generally don't find a need to do that with my international investing. The second question would be, and I don't know the answer off the top of my head, um, is does this cover all the international you need? Or does this cover you know, the same thing that sort of total international fund would cover? I don't think it does, um, just based on the names. Of course, this is Europe, but the Pacific, you can you can look at it here if you go down to sector and then pick, um, we'll just go with region. Yeah, Japan, but there's almost no Latin America, no Asia emerging, no Africa, Middle East. Of course, there's no Europe, but you've got that covered here, right? But there's still a lot missing. Now, maybe you've decided you don't need those regions. You don't want them. And that's up to you, of course. Um, yeah, they're not here either, right? No Latin, no Asia emerging, um, no Africa, Middle East. So if you compare all of these two funds, like a VXUS, there won't be, for some of those regions, there won't be huge allocations because it's all cap-weighted, meaning, you know, based on the public companies in those regions and their values. Um, but if we look at it, we'll stick with regions. You see there's some Latin America. You might say, well, it's only 2.5%. What do I care? But look, 15% Asia emerging, 3.5% um, Africa, Middle East. And so I, for me, the question would be, why am I adding the complexity of taking one fund and splitting it into two and getting less diversification? Now, for you, maybe there's a good reason why you want to do that. That's okay. Just for me, that's how I would think through it. Another good question here from VVG. Is it wrong to invest in the market for saving for a home down payment? Well, the thing you just have to recognize is the market can be down for extended periods of time. And so if you're very flexible on when you buy a home, not necessarily, but you just, you know, if we have another, what, what was it? 2000, 2001, 2002, you know, you could see, you know, or you know, 07, 08, uh, I guess into 09, you could see it, you know, your money, you know, get cut, cut in half or worse. And then it could take a number of years to build back up. So it's really a question whether you want to risk that. How important is it to you that you buy the house by a date certain and, and that sort of thing? That's really the question. All right. So another good question by BZ Power. As people approach retirement five years or less, what have you seen as how uh, many years people have in cash? You know, it varies wildly, widely. I mean, I do get a lot of emails and folks share this sort of information with me. Um, I think a lot of people want a couple of years cash. They feel it just makes them feel safe. 
Um, and so I've seen a lot of folks, this is all anecdotal, but but they want to, you know, say one to three years of cash. I don't, I don't, you know, for me, one year as an emergency fund, um, I feel comfortable with that myself, but but I include that in my bond allocation. So, you know, it's it's just I have my bond allocation and some amount of it's in treasuries, you know, or uh, treasury bills. Um, but yeah, people get a lot of security from holding cash. Again, though, the thing I would say is, one, you want to do something that you think you can stick with for a long period of time. So like people raise this issue when, as last year, the market was down, the bond market was down, the interest rates are up. Everyone loves cash. But you go back in time a couple of years, no one loved cash, right? Uh, no one was asking me these questions. Uh, and so um, I think it's best to pick something that's that's reasonable and that you can stick with regardless of what the market's doing. So at least that's what I try to do. Mary Ellen Burns, will you be updating your podcast with these shows? Yes, and I'll look at what's going on there. I have someone that helps me with that. And in fact, he's listening tonight because he also does the timestamps for me. So maybe Matt, let me know if we can add some more podcasts. We, we do them in batches, uh, but there will be more. So yeah, they will, they will be coming. Camden wants to know how, I don't know that I follow this question. How should I save my money for student loans? Is, does this mean like when student loans when payments kick back in, that's the only thing I can make. I think that maybe that's what you mean. If I if if I had money that was going to go to pay student loans, I would keep it liquid. It would be in a savings account, maybe T bills, something very 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 safe. If I understand your question, that's what I would do. Well. So this next question from Tom, for a very large value account, what is your perspective on holding municipal bond funds versus investing in a separately managed account of individual bonds purchased by a professional manager? So the fact that they're munis, I don't think affects my thinking on this, although maybe it should, but I don't think so. Really the question is, do I just put my money in a bond fund if it happens, if, if a municipal bond fund is what makes sense for you, that's fine, I guess versus uh, SMA, a separately managed account, um, where you hire a professional that actually picks individual bonds. So my concern with hiring a, a, a manager to pick individual bonds is that it's going to be expensive and they're unlikely to outperform bond funds over the long, period, long term. You know, you can find some data on bonds where maybe there's the argument that professional management can do better. I'm not convinced. And I certainly would have no idea if the professional manager I ended up hiring was going to outperform. To me, it's just, so I just would pick simplicity for me and go with a fund, which is what I do. Okay. Oops, let's see here. So 
So Kat wants to know my thoughts on, on, on alternative investments like REITs, real estate syndications, commodities. Points out the personal capital, by the way, now called Empower. Empower bought them and now they've rebranded. So it's no longer personal capital, it's Empower. And Empower's personal dashboard. The tool hasn't changed at all. It's still free, it's the same tool. Anyway, recommends 10% in alternatives. I have no problem with alternatives per se. I think REITs are great. I, I personally don't get into real estate syndications. I, I I don't like it that I don't have control over the tax consequences of, of, of real estate syndications. Um, I don't like their, you know, their fees. Uh, some, you know, some are okay, I suppose. And we had, we've had some on the show. I've talked about some in the past. Um, I've just never felt that the complexity it adds to my taxes and to my portfolio are worth it. Commodities, I don't feel a need to invest in commodities per se. I get I get exposure to commodities just in the S&P 500 or the total market or total international, right? Because you've got companies in those indexes whose profitability turns in part on, on commodities, right? Like deer, we're talking about deer. That's a perfect example. Obviously oil companies. Um, you know, some would say get some extra exposure. I, 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 I think that's a reasonable choice. If you said, well, I want 5% in some sort of commodities fund, I'd probably pick a commodities fund that actually invested in companies rather than just raw commodities. Um, that's just a personal preference, I guess. But um, I just haven't felt a need to do that. I like REITs a lot. I don't, I don't have REITs at the moment because I was trying to simplify the portfolio. If I were going to add anything to my portfolio as it exists today, the next thing I would probably add would be REITs. But yeah. Well, this is an interesting question. Well, all of your questions are interesting, but this one particularly caught my attention from Robert. Just retired. Thoughts on a portfolio of 60% Vanguard Wellington and 40% Vanguard Wellesley. Well, my first question to you would be, what is the asset allocation, stocks to bonds, you're going after? Because I'll pull these up here. We'll start with Wellington. Vanguard Global Wellington. Is that the same thing as Vanguard Wellington? I think it is. Well, we'll assume that it is. It's good. I guess it is, but it's good enough for our purpose. Let me pull up Wellesley and then I'll show you this. Yeah. So if you look at these two funds, here's Wellington. The portfolio is roughly um, six, we'll call it roughly 60 40, right? 60% stocks, 40% fixed income. And then Wellesley is uh, the opposite, more or less. 40% roughly equity and 60%, again, roughly. And this, this is going to vary a bit from time to time. So my question is, like, why are you mixing these two? What's the, I, It's a question. I'm not saying it's a mistake or anything. I'm just wondering why. Um, and, and maybe it's because you don't want 60-40 or 40-60. You want something in between, and mixing these two together gets you that. I mean, uh, but but so those are questions. These funds historically have been phenomenal. They are actively managed, but they're relatively inexpensive, around 30 basis points, 32 maybe. 
Uh, well, this one's 29, and this one is, yeah, 32. They are actively managed, um, so you have to be comfortable, you know, where there could be, in theory, manager could have a bad year, or bad decade. It's possible. I mean, but, but you know, these are well, these are two of the oldest mutual funds available. I mean, Wellington, I'm pretty sure, started in 1929, I think. Um, and you know, they've done ex exceptionally well. I don't own either fund, but they've done very, very well. I just, I'm curious why you, you couldn't pick one or the other, but again, maybe you're trying to dial in a certain asset allocation. I can't argue with their, their, their track record. I, I'm more comfortable with index funds, but can't argue with their track record. All right. Uh, let's see. Next one. I feel bad that I can't do polls. I'm going to have to, but when we get to the end tonight, I'm going to see if I can do a poll without losing all these questions. So we'll do an experiment. Thanks for reminding folks about Mike Piper's uh, open social security calculator, invaluable to my family. We have a disabled child and really can't use simple calculators. Even new retirement isn't useful for me. Yeah, it's a great calculator. I, as I've said, I'm going to have Mike on the show. We talked about it at the Bogleheads conference. It's it's just that I've just got a lot going on right now. All right. So Jessica says, I'm 76, female, have not withdrawn anything from my investments so far. I reinvest my R&Ds into a regular account. Does the 4% rule still apply? Well, here's the deal. The 4% rule uh, assumed a 30-year retirement. So unless you live to be 106, which you could, right? Um, but, but it's unlikely just we just go by, you know, life expectancy tables, right? So I think what a lot of folks would say is you could actually start with a higher percentage. Uh, but but the, the starting point is to figure out what assumption you want to make about your life expectancy and what you're comfortable with. Um, and of course, I, I can't answer that. But um, once you do, and you could use calculators or financial planners or just hire a financial planner just for, for an hour or two to, to go over this. Um, they could run some numbers for you. But yeah, the 4% rule assumes a 30-year retirement. So if I were 76, I would be comfortable spending more than 4%. I don't know exactly what that number would look like, but it would definitely be more than, I would be com comfortable starting year, year one at, at the age of 76, spending something higher than 4% personally. Um, but again, a lot of it depends on your other sources of income, flexibility you have in spending, what your personal goals are. Do you want to leave a lot of money to someone or not, or to a charity? So a lot of factors that go into the ultimate answer to what your plan should be. All right. Jay says, uh, love overnight oats. Yeah, they're good. And in fact, it's like I kick myself when I wake up and realize I forgot to make them the night before. It's awful. Okay. 
So Dan wants to know, how do you find time to research and get ideas, directional integration into financial topics? Well, I'm retired, so that kind of helps. I don't, you know, I don't have a day job. But honestly, it, it can be difficult. A lot of the topics come from you guys. I do read your emails, although I'm behind. But I do, I, I don't respond to all of them, but I read them. And, but I also constantly read financial news, books. So, I mean, honestly, I've got more topics than I prob I'll probably ever get to. So next question, exit gates. What are your top three countries on your travel bucket list? I don't know that I have a bucket list per se, but yeah, there are some places. I'd love to see Italy. Florence, if I had picked a city in Italy, it would be Florence. Um, I would like to go to the Far East. I don't know exactly what that means. Japan, maybe. Um, New Zealand would be lovely. That would be fun. Yeah, those are some some that come to mind, but I'm not, you know, it's I'm not one that has to travel like that, or life just won't be complete. And there's a lot of places in the U.S. I want to travel to. I mean, I've been to most states. I think I haven't been to Hawaii. I may have been to every state but Hawaii. It, there may be one or two that I'm missing, but there's still a lot of national parks I'd like to see. Sometimes I'd like to go to cities and hang out. Another thing I want to do is I want to pick some of the best. NFL uh, stadiums. Like I'd love to see a game in Dallas. I'd love to see a game, a couple games. There's a couple stadiums in California. Um, I think I think uh, Las Vegas. They, they have a really cool stadium now, right? So I like to do stadiums. I don't know. I know. I need to get a life. Uh, whatever. I got my overnight oats. I got that going for me. All right. <laughs> I love this this comment. It kind of reminds me of my wife. My fiance is in her third. Oh, in his. See, my fiance is in his thirties and new to investing and gets bored by details. Yeah, my wife doesn't like the details. What do you think about something like FFNOX for retirement savings to keep things simple? Yeah, I mean, let me pull it up. We've looked at this before. I'm pretty sure. And my recollection is it was decent if it's the one I'm thinking about. Yeah, it's a multi-asset index. It's 11 basis points. If we look at the portfolio, it's an 85.15. Yeah, I, I, I mean, just a quick look at it. Seems reasonable to me. Yeah. Uh-oh. Can you guys hear me? Someone says we lost your sound. Can I get? Can someone give me a thumbs up in the chat? Jeff was the last chat I see. He says I'd love to go to Antarctica. Yeah, that's true. Okay, you guys can still hear me. Maybe it was just a glitch for a minute. Hmm, this is a question I've not considered. When it comes to asset placements, uh, which I guess you mean like location, I'm not sure, but how should one treat accounts with ongoing uh, contributions differently from a static account, such as an old rollover IRA? I don't know. I don't know that it should be treated differently. Uh, 
I'm trying to think of a reason to think of those static or old accounts differently. I mean, there's always the question, should you roll it over somewhere to simplify and have fewer accounts? But that's not what you're asking. I can't think of what the difference should be. I don't know. I can't think of a difference. Look at this. And, and having said that, look at the next question. Your favorite phrase is, I don't know. It's a really important thing to be able to say, I don't know. I always like on CNBC, you know, they're interviewing someone and, and, and they say, okay, so where do you think the market's headed? And if they were interviewing me, I'd say like, I have no idea. That's why they don't have me on the show. Perhaps one of many reasons. I don't know. So um, Rick says, regarding your recent Social Security video, others think the solutions are more likely to be raising the wage income max, meaning how much they, how much of your income is subject to the Social Security tax, and increasing the filing age rather than reducing benefits. Yeah, I suspect something like that will probably uh, happen as well. I mean, here, here's the reality. We've got real budget problems, as everyone knows. And entitlements generally are what's killing us financially. I mean, Social Security is the single biggest budget item. I think it's 12% of the budget. To put that in context, is it 12 or is it more than that? Interest, I think, is 8%. Uh, I was looking at this the other day. Yeah, here we go. I guess I don't know how, I, I don't even know what site this is. Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. I don't know if this is conservative. Liberal, neither, but this is just data. So, yeah, Social Security is 23%. Medicare is 14%. Medicaid, other you know, CHIP, ACA, 12%. I mean, so, you know, you're almost at 50%. Um, you know, defense is 14 Net interest is 8 I don't know how well you can see that. So I don't see how, you know, we can raise taxes. Of course, and I'm sure that's part of any solution if we ever get to that point. But you can't, you know, you can't solve this taxing the billionaires. Maybe a great idea to tax, add, you know, tax Elon Musk more. I got no issue with that. Uh, but it, it, it ain't solving anything. That's the problem. And so um, something's got to be done. And so I, I don't, you know, I, I understand the, the politicians say, well, don't touch Social Security, Medicare, but and it, and you certainly can't change it for people receiving it or about to receive it. I think that's just wrong, and I don't think that that will happen. But changes, you know, uh, that will affect maybe people. I don't know, ten or fifteen years or more away from receiving these benefits. I, I don't see how we don't do that, it, along with many other things, right? Like perhaps raising taxes, cutting. Uh, other programs as we can, but I just, those are just the numbers in there. I don't see how we, 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 we don't do something. Anyway, what do I know? All right. How are we doing on time? I am going to try to ask a poll question and it could just obliterate all of these, um, all of these questions that are remaining that I won't get to anyway. Let me see if I can figure out how to do this. Not there. 
Let's see. Not there. Here we go. Restore chat. I'm going to start a poll. Do you participate in the Bogleheads Reddit forum? Yes or no? So I'm asking the community. That would be all of you, by the way. Um, now, did I lose my, my, my questions? No, they're still here. Oh, good. I haven't lost the questions. That's good to know for next year, or next year. Hopefully it won't be that long, two weeks from now. Good, good, good. Most of you do not participate. Yeah, that doesn't really surprise me. So I can actually ask, I can, I can do both. Let's see if I can figure out how to actually get back to the questions, though. I don't actually see the questions. That's not what I wanted. Let me end the poll. Just making sure I can navigate. Here we go. And I'm back to the questions. Good. Paul, I guess it was just the same gentleman that, that asked the question, maybe. Um, he's doing 50-50 Wellesley Wellington, so that would give you roughly a 50-50 portfolio. Yeah. I'll leave the last question here. It's not really a question, but a comment. Ed says, I don't know is the most honest thing one could say, it's particularly for me. Well, gang, um, I appreciate everyone remembering to join again tonight since we skipped last week. I wasn't sure I figured maybe all of you forgot about me. Um, it, so again, Lord willing and the creek don't rise. I will be back two weeks from today. I'm going to have some other videos up, hopefully. I, I plan to. Um, keep sending the emails in. I do eventually read them, many of them great topics. I, I work them in to the channel, to the videos as I can. Um, and if you haven't subscribed to the newsletter, there's a link below this video and it goes out Sunday mornings and that I'm going to continue doing. Um, yeah. And that's it. So have a great week. And until next time, remember the best thing money can buy is financial freedom.